Chapter Two of The Man Upstairs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Harris. The Man Upstairs by P. G. Woodhouse. Story Number Two: Something to Worry About. A girl stood on the shingle that fringes Millbourne Bay, gazing at the red roofs of the little village across the water. She was a pretty girl, small and trim. Just now some secret sorrow seemed to be troubling her, for on her forehead were wrinkles, and in her eyes a look of wistfulness. She had, in fact, all the distinguishing marks of one who was thinking of her sailor lover. But she was not. She had no sailor lover. What she was thinking of was that at about this time they'd be lighting up the shop windows in London, and that of all the deadly, depressing spots she had ever visited, this village of Millbourne was the deadliest. The evening shadows deepened, the incoming tide glistened oilily as it rolled over the mud flats. She rose and shivered. Gah! What a owl! She said, eyeing the unconscious village morosely. What a hole! This was Sally Preston's first evening in Milburn. She had arrived by the afternoon train from London, not of her own free will. Left to herself, she would not have come within sixty miles of the place. London supplied all that she demanded from life. She had been born in London. She had lived there ever since. She hoped to die there. She liked fogs, motor-buses, noise, policemen, paper-boys, shops, taxicabs, artificial lights, stone pavements, houses in long grey rows, mud, banana-skins, and moving picture exhibitions especially moving-picture exhibitions. It was, indeed, her taste for these that had caused her banishment to Milbourne. The great public is not yet unanimous on the subject of moving-picture exhibitions. Sally, as I have said, approved of them. Her father, on the other hand, did not. An austere ex-butler who let lodgings in Ubury Street and preached on Sundays in Hyde Park, he looked askance at the movies. It was his boast that he had never been inside a theatre in his life, and he classed cinema palaces with theatres as wiles of the devil. Sally, suddenly unmasked as an habitual frequenter of these abandoned places, sprang with one bound into prominence as the bad girl of the family. Instant removal from the range of temptation being the only possible plan, it seemed to Mr. Preston that a trip to the country was indicated. He selected Milbourne because he had been butler at the hall there, and because his sister, Jane, who had been a parlour-maid at the rectory, was now married and living in the village. Certainly he could not have chosen a more promising reformatory for Sally. Here, if anywhere, might she forget the heady joys of the cinema. Tucked away in the corner of its little bay, which an accommodating island converts into a still lagoon, Milbourne lies dozing. In all sleepy Hampshire there is no sleepier spot. It's a place of calm-eyed men and drowsy dogs. Things crumble away and are not replaced. Tradesmen book orders and then lose interest and forget to deliver the goods. Only centurions die and nobody worries about anything. Or it did not until Sally came and gave them something to worry about. Next door to Sally's Aunt Jane, in a cosy little cottage with a wonderful little garden, lived Thomas Kitchener a large, grave, self-sufficing young man, who by sheer application to work had become already, though only twenty-five, second gardener at the hall. Gardening absorbed him. When he was not working at the hall, he was working at home. On the morning following Sally's arrival, it being a Thursday and his day off, 
He was crouching in a constrained attitude in his garden, every fibre of his being concentrated on the interment of a plump young bulb. Consequently, when a chunk of mud came sailing over the fence, he did not notice it. A second, however, compelled attention by bursting like a shell on the back of his neck. He looked up, startled. Nobody was in sight. He was puzzled. It could hardly be raining mud. Yet the alternative theory that someone in the next garden was throwing it was hardly less bizarre. The nature of his friendship with Sally's Aunt Jane and old Mr. Williams, her husband, was comfortable rather than rollicking. It was inconceivable that they should be flinging clods at him. As he stood wondering whether he should go to the fence and look over, or simply accept the phenomenon as one of those things which no fellow can understand, there popped up before him the head and shoulders of a girl. Poised in her right hand was a third clod, which, seeing that there was now no need for his services, she allowed to fall to the ground. "'Hello,' she said. "'Good morning.' She was a pretty girl, small and trim. Tom was by way of being the strong, silent man with a career to think of, and no time for bothering about girls, but he did see that. There was, moreover, a certain alertness in her expression, rarely found in the feminine population of Milburn, who were apt to be slightly bovine. "'What do you think you're messing about at?' she said affably. Tom was a slow-minded young man, who liked to have his thoughts well under control before he spoke. He was not one of your gay rattlers. Besides, there was something about this girl which confused him to an extraordinary extent. He was conscious of new and strange emotions. He stood staring silently. "'What's your name, anyway?' He could answer that. He did so. "'Oh, mine's Sally Preston. Mrs. Williams is my aunt. I've come from London.' Tom had no remarks to make about London. "'Have you lived here all your life?' "'Yes,' said Tom. "'My goodness, don't you ever feel fed up? Don't you want a change?' Tom considered the point. "'No,' he said. "'Well, I do. I want one now.' Well, "'It's a nice place,' hazarded Tom. "'It's nothing of the sort. It's the beastliest hole in existence. It's absolutely chronic. Perhaps you wonder why I'm here. Don't think I wanted to come here. Not me. I was sent. It was like this.' She gave him a rapid summary of her troubles. "'There. Don't you call it a bit thick,' she concluded. Tom considered this point, too. "'You must make the best of it,' he said at length. "'I won't.' I'll make father take me back. Tom considered this point also. Rarely, if ever, had he been given so many things to think about in one morning. How? he inquired at length. Oh, I don't know. I'll find some way. You see if I don't. I'll get away from here jolly quick. I give you my word. Tom bent low over a rose bush. His face was hidden, but the brown of his neck seemed to take on a richer hue, and his ears were undeniably crimson. His feet moved restlessly, and from his unseen mouth there proceeded the first gallant speech his lips had ever framed. Merely considered as a speech, it was, perhaps, nothing wonderful, but from Tom it was a miracle of chivalry and polish. What he said was, "'I hope not,' and instinct telling him that he had made his supreme effort, and that anything further must be bathos, he turned abruptly and stalked into his cottage, where he drank tea and ate bacon and thought chaotic thoughts and when his appetite declined to carry him more than halfway through the third rasher, he understood. He was in love. These strong, silent men, who mean to be head-gardeners before they are thirty, and eliminate woman from their lives as a dangerous obstacle to the successful career, pay a heavy penalty when they do fall in love. 
The average irresponsible young man, who has hung about North Street on Saturday nights, walked through the meadows and round by the mill, and back home past the creek on Sunday afternoons, taken his seat in the break for the annual outing, shuffled his way through the polka at the tradesman's ball, and generally seized all legitimate opportunities for sporting with Amaryllis in the shade, as a hundred advantages, which your successful careerer lacks. There was hardly a moment during the days which followed when Tom did not regret his neglected education. For he was not Sally's only victim in Melbourne. There was the trouble. Her beauty was not of that elusive type which steals imperceptibly into the vision of the rare connoisseur. It was sudden and compelling. It hit you. Bright brown eyes beneath a mass of fair hair, a determined little chin, a slim figure. These are disturbing things, and the youths of peaceful Milbourne sat up and took notice as one youth. Throw your mind back to the last musical comedy you saw. Recall the leading lady's song with chorus of young men, all proffering devotion simultaneously in a neat row. Well, that was how the lads of the village comported themselves toward Sally. Mr. and Mrs. Williams, till then a highly esteemed but little frequented couple, were astonished at the sudden influx of visitors. The cottage became practically a salon. There was not an evening when the little sitting-room looking out on the garden was not packed. It's true that the conversation lacked some of the sparkle generally found in the better class of salon. To be absolutely accurate, there was hardly any conversation at all. The youths of Melbourne were sturdy and honest. They were the backbone of England. England, in her hour of need, could have called upon them with the comfortable certainty that, unless they happened to be otherwise engaged, they would leap to her aid. But they did not shine at small talk. Conversationally they were a spent force after they had asked Mr. Williams how his rheumatism was. Thereafter they contented themselves with sitting massively about in corners, glowering at each other. Still, it was all very jolly and sociable, and helped to pass the long evenings. And, as Mrs. Williams pointed out in reply to some rather strong remarks from Mr. Williams on the subject of packs of young fools who made it impossible for a man to get a quiet smoke in his own home, it kept them out of the public houses. Tom Kitchener, meanwhile, observed the invasion with growing dismay. Shyness barred him from the evening gatherings, and what was going on in that house with young bloods like Ted Pringle, Albert Parsons, Arthur Brown, and Joe Blossom, to name just four of the most assiduous, exercising their fascinations at close range, he did not like to think. Again and again he strove to brace himself up to join the feasts of reason and flows of soul which he knew were taking place nightly around the object of his devotions, but every time he failed. Habit is a terrible thing. It shackles the strongest, and Tom had fallen into the habit of inquiring after Mr. Williams' rheumatism over the garden fence first thing in the morning. It was a civil, neighborly thing to do, but it annihilated the only excuse he could think of for looking in at night. He could not help himself. It was like some frightful scourge, the morphine habit, or something of that sort. Every morning he swore to himself that nothing would induce him to mention the subject of rheumatism, but no sooner had the stricken old gentleman's head appeared above the fence than out it came. "'Morning, Mr. Williams.' "'Morning, Tom.' Pause indicative of a strong man struggling with himself, then. "'How's the rheumatism, Mr. Williams?' "'Better, thank you, Tom.' And there he was, with his gun spiked. However, he did not give up. He brought to his wooing the same determination which had made him second gardener at the hall at twenty-five. 
He was a novice at the game, but instinct told him that a good line of action was to shower gifts. He did so. All he had to shower was vegetables, and he showered them in a way that would have caused the goddess Ceres to be talked about. His garden became a perfect crater, erupting vegetables. Why vegetables? I think I heard some heckler cry. Why not flowers? Fresh, fair, fragrant flowers. You can do a lot with flowers. Girls love them. There is poetry in them. And what's more, there is a recognized language of flowers. Shoot in a rose, or a calceolaria, or an herbaceous border, or something, I gather, and you have made a formal proposal of marriage without any of the trouble of rehearsing a long speech, and practicing appropriate gestures in front of your bedroom looking-glass. Why, then, did not Thomas Kitchener give Sally Preston flowers? Well, you see, unfortunately it was now late autumn, and there were no flowers. Nature had temporarily exhausted her floral blessings, and was jogging along with potatoes and artichokes and things. Love is like that. It invariably comes just at the wrong time. A few months before there had been enough roses in Tom Kitchener's garden to win the hearts of a dozen girls. Now there were only vegetables. Ah, twas ever thus. It was not to be expected that a devotion so practically displayed should escape notice. Nor should it escape comment. This was supplied by that shrewd observer, old Mr. Williams. He spoke seriously to Tom across the fence on the subject of his passion. "'Young Tom,' he said. "'Drop it!' Tom muttered unintelligibly. Mr. Williams adjusted the top hat, without which he never stirred abroad, even into his garden. He blinked benevolently at Tom. "'You're making up to that young girl of Jane's,' he proceeded. "'You can't deceive me, all these taties and what not. I seen your game fast enough. Just you drop it, young Tom.' "'Why?' muttered Tom rebelliously. A sudden distaste for old Mr. Williams blazed within him. "'Why? Because you'll only burn your fingers if you don't, that's why. I've been watching this young gal of Jane's, and I've seen what sort of a young gal she be. She's a flippity piece, that's what she be. You marry that young gal, Tom, and you'll never have no more quieter happiness. She just take and turn the place upsy-down on you. The man as marries that young gal has got to be master in his own home. He's got to show her what's what now. You ain't got the devil in you to do that, Tom. You're what I might call a sort of a sheep. Now, I admires it in you, Tom. I like to see a young man steady and quiet, same as what you be. So that's how it is, you see. Just you drop this foolishness, young Tom, and leave that young gal be. Else you'll burn your fingers, same as what I say. And giving his top hat a rakish tilt, the old gentleman ambled indoors, satisfied that he had dropped a guarded hint in a pleasant and tactful manner. It's to be supposed that this interview stung Tom to swift action. Otherwise one cannot explain why he should not have been just as reticent on the subject nearest his heart when bestowing on Sally the twenty-seventh cabbage as he had been when he administered the hundred and sixtieth potato. At any rate, the fact remains that as that fateful vegetable changed hands across the fence, something resembling a proposal of marriage did actually proceed from him. As a sustained piece of emotional prose it fell short of the highest standard. Most of it was lost at the back of his throat, and what did emerge was mainly inaudible. However, as she distinctly caught the word love twice, and as Tom was shuffling his feet and streaming with perspiration, and looking everywhere at once except at her, Sally grasped the situation, whereupon, without any visible emotion, she accepted him. Tom had to ask her to repeat her remark. He could not believe his luck. 
It was singular how diffident a normally self-confident man can become once he is in love. When Colonel Milvery of the Hall had informed him of his promotion to the post of second gardener, Tomlin demanded no encore. He knew his worth. He was perfectly aware that he was a good gardener, and official recognition of the fact left him gratified but unperturbed. But this affair of Sally was quite another matter. It had revolutionized his standards of value, forced him to consider himself as a man entirely apart from his skill as a gardener. And until this moment he had had grave doubt as to whether, apart from his skill as a gardener, he amounted to much. He was overwhelmed. He kissed Sally across the fence humbly. Sally, for her part, seemed very unconcerned about it all. A more critical man than Thomas Kitchener might have said that, to all appearances, the thing rather bored Sally. "'Don't tell anybody just yet,' she stipulated. Tom would have given much to be allowed to announce his triumph defiantly to old Mr. Williams, to say nothing of making a considerable noise about it in the village. But her wish was law, and he reluctantly agreed. There are moments in a man's life when, however enthusiastic a gardener he may be, his soul soars above vegetables. Tom's shot with a jerk into the animal kingdom. The first present he gave Sally in his capacity of fiancé was a dog. It was a half-grown puppy with long legs and a long tail, belonging to no one species, but generously distributing itself among about six. Sally loved it and took it with her wherever she went, and on one of those rambles down swooped Constable Cobb. The village policeman, pointing out that, contrary to regulation, the puppy had no collar. It's possible that a judicious meekness on Sally's part might have averted disaster. Mr. Cobb was human, and Sally was looking particularly attractive that morning. Meekness, however, did not come easy to Sally, in a speech which began as argument and ended, Mr. Cobb proving solid and unyielding, as pure cheek. She utterly routed the constable. But her victory was only a moral one, for as she turned to go, Mr. Cobb, dull red and puffing slightly, was already entering particulars of the affair in his notebook, and Sally knew that the last word was with him. On her way back she met Tom Kitchener. He was looking very tough and strong, and at the sight of him a half-formed idea, which she had regretfully dismissed as impracticable, of assaulting Constable Cobb, returned to her in an amended form. Tom did not know it, but the reason why she smiled so radiantly upon him at that moment was that she had just elected him to the post of hired assassin. While she did not want Constable Cobb actually assassinated, she earnestly desired him to have his helmet smashed down over his eyes, and it seemed to her that Tom was the man to do it. She poured out her grievance to him and suggested her scheme. She even elaborated it. "'Why shouldn't you wait for him one night and throw him into the creek? It isn't deep, and it's jolly muddy.' "'Um,' said Tom doubtfully. "'It would just teach him,' she pointed out. But the prospect of undertaking the higher education of the police did not seem to appeal to Tom. In his heart he rather sympathized with Constable Cobb. He saw the policeman's point of view. It's all very well to talk, but when you are stationed in a sleepy village where no one ever murders or robs or commits arson, or even gets drunk and disorderly in the street, a puppy without a collar is simply a godsend. The man must look out for himself. He tried to make this side of the question clear to Sally, but failed signally. She took a deplorable view of his attitude. "'I might have known that you'd have been afraid,' she said, with a contemptuous jerk of her chin. "'Good morning.' Tom flushed. He knew he had never been afraid of anything in his life except her. But nevertheless the accusation stung. 
and as he was still afraid of her, he stammered as he began to deny the charge. "'Oh, leave off!' said Sally irritably. "'Suck a lozenge!' "'I'm not afraid,' said Tom, condensing his remarks to their minimum, as his only chance of being intelligible. "'You are!' "'I am not. It's just that I—' A nasty gleam came into Sally's eyes. Her manner was haughty. "'It doesn't matter,' she paused. "'I've no doubt Ted Pringle will do what I want.' For all her contempt, she could not keep a touch of uneasiness from her eyes as she prepared to make her next remark. There was a look about Tom's set jaw which made her hesitate. But her temper had run away with her, and she went on. "'I'm sure he will,' she said. "'When we became engaged, he said that he'd do anything for me.' There are some speeches that are such conversational knockout blows that one can hardly believe that life will ever pick itself up and go on again after them. Yet it does. The dramatist brings down the curtain on such speeches. The novelist blocks his reader's path with a zareba of stars. But in life there are no curtains, no stars, nothing final and definite, only ragged pauses and uh, discomfort. There was such a pause now. "'What do you mean?' said Tom at last. "'You promised to marry me.' "'I know I did, and I promised to marry Ted Pringle.' That touch of panic, which she could not wholly repress, the panic that comes to everyone when a situation has run away with them like a strange, unmanageable machine, infused a shade too much of the defiant into Sally's manner. She had wished to be cool, even casual, but she was beginning to be afraid. Why, she could not have said. Certainly she would not anticipate violence on Tom's part. Perhaps that was it. Perhaps it was just because he was so quiet that she was afraid. She had always looked on him contemptuously as an amiable, transparent lout, and now he was puzzling her. She got an impression of something formidable behind his stolidity, something that made her feel mean and insignificant. She fought against the feeling, but it gripped her, and in spite of herself she found her voice growing shrill and out of control. I promised to marry Ted Pringle, and I promised to marry Joe Blossom, and I promised to marry Albert Parsons, and I was going to promise to marry Arthur Brown and anybody else who asked me. So now you know. I told you I'd make Father take me back to London. Well, when he hears that I promised to marry four different men, I bet he'd have me home by the first train. She stopped. She had more to say, but she could not say it. She stood looking at him, and he looked at her. His face was gray and his mouth oddly twisted. Silence seemed to fall on the whole universe. Sally was really afraid now, and she knew it. She was feeling very small and defenseless in her extremely alarming world. She could not have said what it was that had happened to her. She only knew that life had become of a sudden very vivid, and that her ideas as to what was amusing had undergone a striking change. A man's development is a slow and steady process of the years, a woman's a thing of an instant, in the silence which followed her words. Sally had grown up. Tom broke the silence. "'Is this true?' he said. His voice made her start. He'd spoken quietly, but there was a new note in it, strange to her. Just as she could not have said that what it was that had happened to her, so now she could not have said what had happened to Tom. He too had changed. But how, she did not know. Yet the explanation was simple. He also had, in a sense, grown up. He was no longer afraid of her. He stood thinking. Hours seemed to pass. "'Come along,' he said at last, and he began to move off down the road. Sally followed. The possibility of refusing did not enter her mind. "'Where are you going?' she asked. It was unbearable, this silence. He did not answer. 
In this fashion, he leading, she following, they went down the road into a lane, and through a gate into a field. They passed into a second field, and as they did so, Sally's heart gave a leap. Ted Pringle was there. Ted Pringle was a big young man, bigger even than Tom Kitchener, and, like Tom, he was of silent habit. He eyed the little procession inquiringly, but spoke no word. There was a pause. "'Ted,' said Tom, "'there's been a mistake.' He stepped quickly to Sally's side, and the next moment he had swung her off her feet and kissed her. To the type of mind that Milbourne breeds, the actions speak louder than words, and Ted Pringle, who had gaped, gaped no more. He sprang forward, and Tom, pushing Sally aside, turned to meet him. I cannot help feeling a little sorry for Ted Pringle. In the light of what happened, I could wish that it were possible to portray him as a hulking brute of evil appearance and worse morals, the sort of person concerning whom one could reflect comfortably that he deserved all he got. I should like to make him an unsympathetic character over whose downfall the reader would gloat. But honesty compels me to own that Ted was a thoroughly decent young man in every way. He was a good citizen, a dutiful son, and would certainly have made an excellent husband. Furthermore, in the dispute on hand, he had right on his side fully as much as Tom. The whole affair was one of those elemental clashings of man and man, where the historian cannot sympathize with either side at the expense of the other, but must confine himself to a mere statement of what occurred. And briefly, what occurred was that Tom, bringing to the fray a pent-up fury which his adversary had had no time to generate, fought Ted to a complete standstill in the space of two minutes and a half. Sally had watched the proceedings, sick and horrified. She had never seen men fight before, and the terror of it overwhelmed her. Her vanity received no pleasant stimulation from the thought that it was for her sake that this storm had been let loose. For the moment her vanity was dead, stunned by collision with the realities. She found herself watching in a dream. She saw Ted fall, rise, fall again, and lie where he had fallen, and then she was aware that Tom was speaking. "'Come along.' She hung back. Ted was lying very still. Gruesome ideas presented themselves. She had just accepted them as truth when Ted wriggled. He wriggled again. Then he sat up suddenly, looked at her with unseeing eyes, and said something in a thick voice. She gave a little sob of relief. It was ghastly, but not so ghastly as what she had been imagining. Somebody touched her arm. Tom was by her side, grim and formidable. He was wiping blood from his face. "'Come along!' She followed him without a word, and presently, behold, in another field, whistling meditatively and regardless of impending ill-will, Albert Parsons. In everything that he did, Tom was a man of method. He did not depart from his chosen formula. Albert, he said, there's been a mistake. And Albert gaped as Ted had gaped. Tom kissed Sally with the gravity of one performing a ritual. The uglinesses of life, as we grow accustomed to them, lose their power to shock, and there is no doubt that Sally looked with a different eye upon this second struggle. She was conscious of a thrill of excitement, very different from the shrinking horror which had seized her before. Her stunned vanity began to tingle into life again. The fight was raging furiously over the trampled turf, and, quite suddenly, as she watched, she was aware that her heart was with Tom. It was no longer two strange brutes fighting in a field. It was her man battling for her sake. She desired overwhelmingly that he should win, that he should not be hurt, and that he should sweep triumphantly over Albert Parsons as he had swept over Ted Pringle. Unfortunately, it was evident even to her that he was being hurt, and that he was very far from sweeping triumphantly over Albert Parsons. He had not allowed himself time to recover from his first battle, 
and his blows were slow and weary. Albert, moreover, was made of sterner stuff than Ted. Though now a peaceful tender of cows, there had been a time in his hot youth when, travelling with a circus, he had fought, week in, week out, relays of just such rustic warriors as Tom. He knew their methods, their headlong rushes, their swinging blows. They were the merest commonplaces of life to him. He slipped Tom, he sidestepped Tom, he jabbed Tom. He did everything to Tom that a trained boxer can do to a reckless novice, except knock the fight out of him, until presently, through the sheer labor of hitting, he too grew weary. Now, in the days when Albert Parsons had fought whole families of Toms in an evening, he had fought in rounds with the boss holding the watch, and half-minute rests, and water to refresh him, and all orderly and proper. Today there were no rounds, no rests, no water, and the peaceful tending of cows had caused flesh to grow where there had been only muscle. Tom's headlong rushes became less easy to sidestep, his swinging blows more difficult than the scientific counter that shot out to check them. As he tired, Tom seemed to regain strength. The tide of the battle began to ebb. He clinched, and Tom threw him off. He fainted, and while he was fainting, Tom was on him. It was the climax of the battle, the last rally. Down went Albert, and stayed down. Physically he was not finished, but in his mind a question had framed itself. The question, Was it worth it? And he was answering, No. There were other girls in the world. No girl was worth all this trouble. He did not rise. "'Come along,' said Tom. He spoke thickly. His breath was coming in gasps. He was a terrible spectacle, but Sally was past the weaker emotions. She was back in the Stone Age, and her only feeling was one of passionate pride. She tried to speak. She struggled to put all she felt into words, but something kept her dumb, and she followed him in silence. In the lane outside his cottage, down by the creek, Joe Blossom was clipping a hedge. The sound of footsteps made him turn. He did not recognize Tom till he spoke. "'Joe, there's been a mistake,' said Tom. "'Been a gunpowder explosion, more like,' said Joe, a simple, practical man. "'What you been doing to your face?' "'She's going to marry me, Joe.' Joe eyed Sally inquiringly. "'Eh? You promised to marry me.' She promised to marry all of us, you, me, Ted Pringle, Albert Parsons. Promised to marry all of us? That's where the mistake was. She's only going to marry me. I, I've arranged it with Ted and Albert, and now I've come to explain to you, Joe. You promised to marry— The colossal nature of Sally's deceit was plainly troubling Joe Blossom. He expelled his breath in a long note of amazement, then he summed up. Why, you're nothing more nor less than a Joshua. The years that had passed since Joe had attended the village Sunday school had weakened his once easy familiarity with the characters of the Old Testament. It's possible that he had somebody else in mind. Tom stuck doggedly to his point. You can't marry her, Joe. Joe Blossom raised his shears and clipped a protruding branch. The point under discussion seemed to have ceased to interest him. Who wants to? He said. Good riddance. They went down the lane. Silence still brooded over them. The words she wanted continued to evade her. They came to a grassy bank. Tom sat down. He was feeling unutterably tired. Tom! He looked up. His mind was working dizzily. You're going to marry me, he muttered. She sat down beside him. I know, she said. Tom, dear, lay your head on my lap and go to sleep. If this story proves anything beyond the advantage of being in good training when you fight, it proves that you cannot get away from the moving pictures even in a place like Milburn, For as Sally sat there nursing Tom, it suddenly struck her that this was the very situation 
with which the Romance of the Middle Ages film ended. You know the one I mean, Sir Percival Ye something, which has slipped my memory for the moment, goes out after the Holy Grail, meets damsel in distress, overcomes her persecutors, rescues her, gets wounded, and is nursed back to life in her arms. Sally had seen it a dozen times, and every time she had reflected that the days of romance are dead, and that that sort of thing can't happen nowadays. End of Section 2, Story 2, Something to Worry About Recording by Mike Harris